Our scripture reading, our first scripture reading this morning is found uh, in your pew Bibles on page 1094. And this is from Romans 5, starting with verse 12 through verse 14. And then we'll move on to verse 18 through verse 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now skipping over to 1 Peter, chapter 2. This is on page 1177 in your pew Bibles. I'm beginning in, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 19 to 25. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and, and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now we're skipping over to chapter 4, which is on that page 1179. 
under the heading Suffering for Being a Christian. Chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Amen. Father God, thank you for these words of encouragement from your servant, Peter. And we just look forward to what our, your servant Mark will be saying to us. We know that he speaks out of experience and out of his great conviction and his great love for you. I just pray for your anointing to be on him this morning, Lord, and for him to minister through your words to our hearts. And Lord, thank you that we can see some good in the suffering that we all have in our various ways, whether hidden or, or visible, Lord. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah, amen. Thank you, Helen. For a lifelong wearer of contact lenses, well, since I was 12 or 13 anyway. The worst part of having an eye infection is we can't wear our contact lenses until the eye infection clears. It's sort of the optometric equivalent of the soup Nazi. No contacts for you! So we must wear our eyeglasses instead or go virtually blind for a bit. Speaking of which, one's vision with eyeglasses is also often not quite as clear as with the contact lenses. But worst of all, by far, we must wear our eyeglasses in public. Vanity of vanities. And we all know the worse our uncorrected eyesight, the thicker the glass, the, the lenses, and the fewer, shall we say, complementary options in eyewear available to us. And yes, without corrective lenses of some sort, I would be legally blind, no kidding. So my glasses are pretty thick. I'll never forget when Neil first saw me with glasses. This was 14 or 15 years ago. It was right outside here on the sidewalk. One of us is going in, one of us is coming out. He looked astonished, and then he blurted out, Wow, you look a lot better without glasses. <laughs> yeah, thanks, I know. <laughs> 
Now, to be fair, they weren't these glasses. They were uh, some other glasses that weren't perhaps as flattering. As suffering goes, though, anywhere in the world, historically and by anyone's definition, this little discomfort I describe would hardly be a blip on the radar screen of suffering. My eyesight is almost entirely correctable, and I can go on with my life nearly unimpeded. Now, having said that, not a few scholars believe poor eyesight may well have been what Paul called his thorn in the flesh, that the Lord Jesus refused to remove from him because it would continue to humble him. I'm just thankful we're living in an age when we have solutions to most of our vision deficiencies, which solutions have rendered them, those deficiencies, entirely first world problems. In other words, people like us just get glasses or contacts or surgery and go on with our lives. We are in a rare place in time and also geography. This morning, I'd like to speak with you from God's word in Holy Scripture about suffering. And by that I mean real suffering, serious suffering, even soul-rending suffering that is unquestionably suffering. I'll have a longer, more detailed central truth for you. You've already seen it printed there. We've read it one time already in your bulletins. But, but if I were to abbreviate it or summarize it, I'd say suffering is both a shared experience and a unique experience for us all. And all suffering is the result of or has its origin in sin. I'll give that one more time. Suffering is both a shared experience and a unique experience for us all. And all suffering is the result of or has its origin in sin. We all suffer. We all suffer in our own unique ways. And all suffering is because of somebody's sin. Much of this suffering was experienced by Jesus himself as he lived a fully human life and ultimately gave his life through much suffering for us. There is even a strong biblical case to be made that he suffered in all ways common to human beings as he was tempted in all ways common to human beings. His early followers also suffered, many of them, because of their faith and for the cause of the gospel. Some examples of suffering by our Christian predecessors are recorded in our sermon text from 1 Peter this morning. Much more suffering has been experienced by human beings generally and historically, but some of it we have suffered, and our loved ones too. The very serious and resonant question posed by one of you to my pastor's suggestion box a while back was, quoting here now, why does God make me suffer? So why doesn't he heal me? That's literally and exactly how the question came to me that I hope to answer this morning. Probably all of us, or, or nearly all of us, have felt like this at one time or another. Perhaps even voiced it like this at some point in our lives, whether concerning our own suffering or that of one or more than one of our 
loved ones? Why does God make me suffer? So why doesn't he heal me? A couple of weeks ago, we touched on the origin and extent of suffering from the biblical Christian point of view. We noted that the ultimate source of all suffering is sin and that God was not, is not, and will not ever be the source of suffering, ours or anyone else's. Now I can hear the wheels turning in the minds of the more biblically astute. Wait just a minute. Didn't God himself declare suffering and death too as consequence of his judgment for sin, beginning with pain in childbirth and toil for food and male domination over women and female subversion of men's role in family and community? That's some suffering, isn't it? Or at least it causes suffering, leads to suffering. Yes, it is and it does. But all of that suffering is consequent to the sinning that God warns us against. And while the direct and collateral consequences of sin go far beyond what we could ever expect, predict, or even imagine, whatever the suffering and whoever, the su whoever suffers, it's because of someone's sin. There is much suffering going on right now that is the result of someone else's sin. Perhaps the most obvious contemporary example is Ukrainians being subjected to suffering and death because of the sin of one man in Moscow and his authoritarian system of control. It can also be observed that his own people, most especially the ill-trained and ill-equipped soldiers, so-called, that he sent to the front lines, they have suffered not because of their sin, but because of his sins of pride, arrogance, narcissism, exploitation, domination, and rebellion against God most of all. In all this suffering, God usually gets the blame. Why does God make me suffer? So why doesn't he heal me? Don't get me wrong, he's big enough to take it. It's just that understanding the truth the biblical Christian truth may well remove an impediment between us and him. A more biblical Christian faith practice allows us to pray more effectively and to find real comfort, real hope, and real healing from him. Here's a, a simple illustration. A murderer or a shoplifter, either or both, go to trial, and both are convicted of his or her crime. And though their crimes are not the same or of the same magnitude, murder and shoplifting, both are sentenced by the same presiding judge, one to life and one to two years. Would anyone say that the pain and suffering associated with their crimes the dead person's family or the owner whose shop was apparently lifted was the judge's fault? Of course not. That would be utterly ridiculous. The criminals are responsible. Easy, right? Hold on. 
Would anyone say the pain and suffering associated with those two criminals' crimes to their own families, due to their respective absences while in jail, were the judge's fault? Well, again, in the vacuum of a hypothetical, we'd likely say no, but we are getting closer to home. Others also bear the consequences of our sins, and the closer they are, the more acutely they suffer. And the Bible is very clear. There is no sin without consequences, though I do know there's a centuries-old movement out there that insists there is. It's called hedonism. It's a lie. There is always a price to pay for sin. Okay, back to our illustration. So, with the suffering, and it would be deliberately induced suffering, on the two criminals, because of their incarceration, be the judge's fault? Well, no, it wouldn't. What if we followed the story throughout the decades into the future from the time they were incarcerated or, 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 or having their sentence meted out? And we can trace very significant consequences, not all of them negative, perhaps, owing to these crimes throughout the generations of these criminals. Would those be credited against the judge's account? Again, we're getting still closer and closer to our current situation with pain and suffering. Maybe we could attribute some positive consequences to the judge's just and righteous sentencing. Somebody gets scared straight, and generations are brought into alignment with the law and benefited in literally too many ways to recount or keep track of, but what about the negative consequences? Perhaps children are victimized and led astray because father or mother isn't there for them. Perhaps the spouse loses the house and suffers bankruptcy because the mainstream of family income is lost. Perhaps a lifelong resentment is born. Would these be the, the judge's fault? No, they would not. So why would the consequences of sin, summarized for our purposes this morning as suffering, be the fault or accountable actions of a holy and righteous God who tells us what the consequences of sin will be, namely death, before the sinning is ever done? Here's the thing. I might not, or you might not be directly culpable for the sin resulting in the cancer, or the Parkinson's, or the heart attack, or the mental illness, or the cerebral palsy, or the Alzheimer's that manifests God's general judgment to sin, or on sin. Only one single person on the earth carries that burden. Listen again to how Romans 5 puts it. Verse 13, verse 12 rather. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
all the sin in the world, both then and now, and every place in between, started with one man, Adam, and spread to all human beings who ever lived, including you, me, our children, and our children's children, should the Lord Jesus tarry. And while we usually can't draw a direct line from a sin and its consequences, though, though sometimes we can, a drunk driver gets in his car, starts it, leaves home or bar or wherever it is that he has been drinking, he goes headlong into a, another car coming in the, from the opposite direction and kills a family of four. We can draw a direct line from that man's drinking, that man's driving, to the deaths of those people, which is the consequence of his sin. So sometimes we can draw a direct line, but usually we can't. But the consequences of all sin, from Adam to us, have been visited upon all human beings everywhere in innumerable ways. We literally can't count them. So we reiterate the, the abbreviated central truth. Suffering is both a shared experience and a unique experience for us all. And all suffering is the result of or has its origin in sin. And what we're calling consequences often, in fact, almost always, manifests in our bodies, in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, in our churches and communities, in our people groups, and in all peoples all over the world as suffering of all types and every severity. As we also heard from Helen's reading a bit ago from Romans 5, we hear again and apply it. From verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, verse 19, for us by this one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death. So long as we live in these bodies, flawed, fallen, and prone to sin, we all suffer along with the rest of humanity, the various consequences of all sin throughout the ages, ultimately physical death, ultimately in the sense of our physical existence, physical death, and all manifestations of potential Suffering in cancer, in COVID, in sinful ambition, in fraught relationships, in broken marriages, in mental illness, in neurological disorders, in conflict, in war, and in other ways too many to list here. Which is to say that every human being is under the power, the effect, and the personal tendency toward sin. But that is not the end of the story. Listen again to Romans 5, 18 to 21 with the best parts put back in. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, 
as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The major and vital point here is that all sin attracts or invokes consequences, and much of what we experience as suffering is the accumulated natural consequences of sin over the ages until today. But Jesus Christ, in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection, did all that could be done and all that had to be done to reverse and end this cycle of sin and death in humanity and indeed in creation. And though he's done it all so that he could declare on the cross truly, it is finished. The effect and the fullness of redemption will only be made complete in the new heavens and the new earth when and where Jesus himself will make all things new. But until then, suffering will persist. Injustice will persist. Difficult days are ahead as we await his coming. So with that as background, turn with me now to that wonderful book of 1 Peter. We'll spend just a few minutes on each of these two passages. They deserve much more than I'll be able to give them this morning. But we can't really understand what's going on there if we don't have a very good handle on the consequences of sin in suffering. That all of our suffering comes as the result of sin, almost always not our own personal sin or those around us, but the accumulated effects of sin through the ages, permutation after permutation after permutation after permutation, that takes its effect in literally every area of our physical lives, bodies, lives, relationships, organizations, communities, people groups, nations. As you turn there, I, I, I hope we are seeing that while God is not the originator or source of suffering, he is the originator of hope against suffering and the source of deliverance from suffering of his people and deliverance through suffering. The through suffering happens in this life, the from suffering happens in the next unto eternal life. And this is why Jesus came. And by the end of our time in God's word this morning, I hope we'll all be able to see, accept, and even celebrate the deliverance of God in Christ Jesus, of his people, even us here this morning, not necessarily from suffering, but through our suffering all the way to the end, who is himself. This is so important. Uh, in fact, I believe this is one of the very important implications from Jesus' statement in the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's John 14, 6, John's Gospel. And from the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus himself is our deliverance and our destination. 
And what has that to do with suffering, you might ask? Well, only everything is the biblical Christian answer. The solution to our suffering, indeed, the suffering of the whole world, is found in the suffering and sovereign Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The gift of pain, why we hurt, and what we can do about it, is the excellent book co-written written by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. It's been retitled from what was perhaps deemed to be a, a title that was too direct, The Gift Nobody Wants. <laughs> so the gift of pain is, is, is in one way more direct and in another way not so perhaps gloomy. Um, you also remember Philip Yancey perhaps as the author of Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference, that we've just uh, benefited from over the last uh, number of Sundays in my mini-series on prayer. Well, Dr. Brand was both a child of missionaries to India and he was a missionary doctor to lepers in India himself. And the, the main problem that lepers have that causes them to become lepers is that they can't feel physical pain. And so they bump into things, they cut themselves, they uh, are injured and they don't know it and that gets infected and festers and they lose a limb and two limbs and fingers and such. Um, and he lived and worked among lepers in India. This is what he writes. I am not a pain expert in the traditional sense. I've never worked in a pain clinic and have had limited experience in pain, man in pain management. Instead, I came to appreciate the subtleties of pain by treating those who do not feel it. I certainly never said, thank God for pain as a child in the Coley Hills or in medical school during the Blitz. That outlook came after years of working among victims of painlessness. Other patients, not to mention my own children, gave constant reminders of the more common attitude toward pain. It hurts. How do I make it stop? Over the years, I have tried to fit together an approach that includes what I learned from the painless, as well as from those of us who feel pain. I cannot live well without, we cannot live well without pain, but how do we best live with it? Pain is a priceless, essential gift. Of that I have no doubt. And yet, only by learning to master pain can we keep it from mastering us. Here, Dr. Brand reminds us that not all pain is suffering. Sometimes suffering is caused by the absence of pain or the lack of an ability to feel pain, as with the lepers, both physical lepers as well as emotional lepers, we might add. Feeling pain confirms that we're still alive. But it's when pain is needless, when pain goes, without, goes beyond the physical necessities of warning us of danger or sickness, or when pain moves into the realm of suffering that we need relief. And the most important pain and suffering that Jesus came to relieve or prevent even, and the pain and suffering that we as biblical Christians and local churches are in the business of facilitating in his name and by his spirit is eternal pain and suffering. 
I think John Piper says it just right when he says, all Christians and Christian churches must be for the relief of all suffering everywhere and especially eternal suffering. So let's look at it. First from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning there with verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. What is a gracious thing? When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you, for it you endure, and for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So Christian, as we suffer, whatever it is that we suffer, we all experience suffering and it's unique to us. No one can tell us that we're not suffering because they don't know what our suffering is like, not truly. When we suffer, it is virtuous, and it is valuable, and it is favorable in God's eyes for us to suffer as Jesus did without making a whole big deal about it, but we're always available to others to comfort them. Yes, we receive comfort from, everyone, from each other, and that is a good and right thing to do. And it is good and right for us to share with each other details of our lives, including how we are suffering. Perhaps we have some malady that needs to be cared for. Perhaps we have some emotional disturbance that needs to be shored up. Perhaps we have some lack of uh, hope that needs to be encouraged. Those are all good and necessary things, and we share those things with each other. But how we suffer, and I'll get to this in just a little bit when we turn to 1 Peter 4, how we suffer is key to who we are as Christ followers. Do we suffer well? That's a very strange thing to say or question to ask. But do we suffer as Christians? So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is where I want to spend most of our time that remains. Starting there with verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So if we are well versed in scripture, 
if we have received good and sound teaching, if we are led by the Holy Spirit, then we know that the Christian life is a battle. We know that the Christian life is difficult. We know that the Christian life is something that goes across, not with the currents of society. We know that because the Bible says that over and over and over again. And so we should not be shocked that we're suffering or shocked that we're being tried, shocked that we're being tempted, shocked that our body is responding in ways when tempted that we would not like to do. I, I, I love that passage. Uh, it's kind of a strange thing to say, but I love that passage, Romans chapter 7, when Paul is saying the good that I would do, I don't do, and the good that I would do, I constantly find, that, or the bad that I, I, find, I would not do, I constantly find myself doing. So we do, the, we do the bad and we don't do the good. That's a pretty good summary of the battle of the flesh between good and evil, between truth and falsehood, between hope and joy and depression over our lack of good practice. We should not be surprised by this, and so often we are, aren't we? Verse 13, but rejoice. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, every time we run into a, pass, you know, a, a command like that, it's a command, it's in the imperative, but rejoice. There's a fiery trial going on around you and, and in you, rejoice. I just like to be around Peter and Paul when they say, things like this to see how joyful they are or how joyful they were, uh, but this can only come by the Holy Spirit. We don't rejoice in suffering in the flesh. We wallow in it. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is fulfilled. Remember that passage in Romans chapter 8. When if we suffer as he suffered, we will also be glorified when he's glorified. Um, that's a very important passage. You can find that in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. So here is a very similar teaching. That if we find the way by the Spirit and exposure to God's word that we can rejoice as we share in Christ's sufferings, we may also expect to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's a hopeful thought. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. I've been insulted for the name of Christ, and I didn't feel particularly blessed, but that doesn't take away from the reality that I am blessed to be insulted for the name of Christ. Now, if, if my knowledge and my heart can be together in that, that would be a very helpful, and we might even say joyful thing. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as, or as a meddler. In other words, ensure that your suffering is because of righteousness rather than because of doing evil, breaking the law, being thrown in jail. And then verse 
16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now there are two things I think that we can take from this. Suffering as a Christian. The first and most obvious one, I think, is that we suffer because we're Christian. Whether we're in an area where being a Christian is illegal or looked down upon or uh, made fun of, where preaching the gospel perhaps is not allowed, that's one aspect of suffering because we're Christians. But there's another aspect of it too that I think also applies. And that is suffering as a Christian, the same sufferings common to mankind. I think the way that we do that, as I said earlier, suffering well, I think the way that we do that is a testimony to all, an encouragement to all of God's people and a testimony to all who are around us, nurses, doctors, neighbors, that we are suffering well as Christians. And we are giving Christ the glory and giving Christ the um, uh, credit that he is due, bringing glory to him. It's not me, it's Christ in me. I think that's included here. It's, it's not the obvious, it's not the first level of understanding here, but I think both suffering as Christians because we're Christians and suffering as Christians, all suffering that is common to humanity, both are good, necessary, and uh, uh, witnessing uh, understandings of this text and practice of our faith. Verse 17, for it is time for God, uh, for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And here is just a, a reference to the ugliness of sin and the remarkable miracle it is for any of us to be saved and to be kept in salvation which the Holy Spirit does. He seals us until the day of redemption once he comes. And it is time, though, for judgment to begin at, at the household of God, from God, by God. And if it begins with us, there's no hope for those who do not obey the gospel of God. That's the point that he's making here, except that Christ intervenes. And perhaps that will happen as we suffer well and give testimony to the power of Christ in us. And, verse 20, if the righteous is scarcely saved, I guess it's verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's a rhetorical question. The Bible answers it clearly, and we've been there many times. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls, entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And the, the main point there is that this is not all there is. Yes, we will suffer in our bodies, these physical bodies that we have that are, are tainted by sin, that are fragile, and that will disappoint us. They will let us down. We will die in this life if Jesus doesn't come. And the way that we live and the way that we die 
And the way that we suffer in between testifies to the risen Lord Jesus and the hope to come. Now, I'd like to directly answer the questions posed. There are four of them. Two of them are in my title. Suffering, is there a point? Yes, there is a point. In God's hands, in God's word, suffering gives exposure to the ugliness and the terrible nature of sin. And so, is there a point? Yes, there is. What is it? The terrible nature of sin is exposed by all suffering of all types. And, and, and to my correspondent, why does God make me suffer? Friend, dear, beloved, God does not make you suffer. But he will lift you up. He will comfort you. He will walk with you. And why doesn't he heal you? I, that's way beyond my pay grade and, and way beyond what the Bible teaches us, I think. Uh, we pray for healing. We hope for healing. We believe that God is able and does, in fact, heal. But my example earlier on, he told Paul, no, I'm not going to remove that for your, your humility. And to, to be fair... Healing in this body, in this life, is only temporary. We are going to die one day. But we are delivered from both death and sin in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is a hopeful thought. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this, your word. I pray that any deficiencies in my presentation, you will shore up, you will fill the gaps. As I walked out of the house, I asked my wife to pray for me. I said it's only the biggest issue in all of humanity to be dealt with in one message, that is the question of suffering, the problem of suffering. She, of course, said, well, you can't do it in one message. You can't do it all in one message, and so that's certainly true. But we want to believe you. We want to know you. We want to, yes, we want to fellowship with you in the sufferings of Christ. We want to suffer well. We want to live well in the suffering. We want to die well in the suffering. We want, Lord, to give glory to you and to walk with you for all eternity. And we ask that you, our sovereign and our savior, our deliverance and our destination, that you would hold us up and allow us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, the last four verses of the chapter I'd like ringing in our ears as we leave this place this, this morning, if I can find it. It's in the New Testament, right, Philippians? I'm joking. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, in fact, bless us with being engaged in the same conflict between good and evil, between your spirit and the demonic, between uh, your church and the world, between your people and those who are not, between belief and unbelief, between righteousness and unrighteousness, justice and injustice. Lord, help us to live in a way that honors you and exalts your name, proclaims your gospel until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.